Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's episode is 93, a conversation with Nancy Jane Moore. Welcome, Nancy. Oh, hi, Jeannie. It's so nice to be here. It is. For everybody, Nancy is in my writing group. I met her through Catherine Carr. And I have been pleased and delighted to call you my friend ever since then. And you give such amazing feedback. Plus, I love the work that you do. That's lovely to hear. I always worry about my feedback. And I'm always glad when people like my work. But I do sometimes wonder if I'm doing the right thing with feedback. So I always like to hear that. Well, I think so. I always find, for me, it's wonderful when I can take something in there and I see who I hit and who gets it and who doesn't get it. And I love yes. that, for instance, you and Madeline, you kind of get me. And yes. when you don't get me, it is very clear that you didn't get me because I did not get my brain all the way out onto the paper. Oh, that wasn't clear? Oh, that's my bad. That's not your bad. Well, I just had an experience in a Zoom writing group that I'm in where I, I had a story that I was pretty happy with. I knew it was a first draft, but but I was happy with a lot. And someone asked me, it's set in Mississippi in 1964. Mm-hmm. And someone said, who are you writing for? Because if you're writing for people who remember 1964, because they were alive then, that's one group. But if you're writing for people a lot younger, you need to explain a lot more about what the racism situation, the Jim Crow situation was like in Mississippi in 1964. And that hadn't really occurred to me because it's just like, well, this is just life. And of course, 1964 is history to an awful lot of people. It is. And you grew up in Texas, though, right? Not I did. Right. So you have Texas during the, the I'm going to say, 70s, touch of the 60s here and there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, I yeah, I left, I left Texas in the late 70s, actually. And right. I ended up in Washington, D.C., My family goes back on both sides, pretty much the history of Anglos in Texas, my family is part of, and uh, you can't get it out of your system. It's just there, you know, so I never stopped quite being Texan. (laughs) But that, that brings an interesting question around. We are all products of our time and place. But I find that a lot of there's been a, a, a trend lately, and I think you pointed it out to me first, that a lot of people are choosing even earlier times and earlier writings as being inspiration, like the Enola Holmes, I think you mentioned, and a lot of the others that are, you know, everybody who wants to write about Sherlock in that same world. What do you think? What do you think about this new trend of taking it and twisting it? Does it modernize it? Do you need to reset it? Do you have to explain these things to a new reader or don't you? Well, you know, I think it's a little different with that because with the, uh, with Sherlock Holmes, maybe because it's been in in so many movies, so many stories, television series, people have been playing with it. I think most people actually know what Sherlock is supposed to be like, at least to some extent, what Watson is supposed to be like. And so I don't think you have to explain that, except when you're changing them a little bit. And a lot of people are, of course, changing them quite a bit. Uh, I really... I, was, I, I need to get a hold of some of the Enola Holmes book. I really loved the movie version. And I loved what they did with Sherlock, who was pretty smart, but not, you know, there were some gaps in his knowledge. And of course, they didn't, they didn't do Mycroft as terribly smart at all. 
which I found amusing because most people do Mycroft as incredibly smart as well. Um, well, the, I, I was going to say, I, I enjoyed the way they did that, but I wanted to explore something that people can be brilliant, but not apply their brilliance to every situation. And if you've already dismissed a relation, a child, a dog, a pet, whatever it is, you don't really apply your full intellect to the situation. I mean, he, well, exactly. he has a lot of judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly using her, making her mother this very hardcore suffragist and then and giving her that upbringing, that, that particular kind of upbringing. And of course, the man, Sherlock included, and certainly Mycroft, no conception of women, no conception of what a girl child might want, what might be important for a girl child, sending her off to this ridiculous finishing school, which clearly she doesn't belong in because that's the kind of category they put girls in and they don't think any farther. That That's part of what I really like about seeing people do things. Of, people do a lot with Sherlock Holmes and not all of it is as interesting, but something else that I've noticed that I really liked was... Uh, Theodora Goss's series of books, uh, the Athena Club series. I don't know if you've oh, seen I those. I love that series of the, oh. the daughters of all the great mad scientists. <laughs> exactly. And they, you know, it really puts such a lovely twist on it and stay, stays in keeping with the times. And, and uh, Sherlock Holmes comes off well in that. I mean, he's in, he's in that as well. I mean, it's hard to write in that period without Sherlock Holmes, I guess, if you're going to play in with those, those particular set of tropes. But she's just done such a wonderful, I mean, Justine Frankenstein is probably the best, you know, because she's such a, such a sweet and gentle person. And she, of course, is huge and monstrous looking and so forth. But that series, I think it's really opened my mind. I started thinking, well, a little bit of this is almost fan fiction, but it's taking it, it's taking it a little bit farther than just being in that world. It's like, well, this is what that world left out. This is what those stories missed. Uh, these are the other people who were, who were part of this world. And I, um, I've really enjoyed that. It almost reminds me a little bit of some of the ideas of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I mean, that you took the two bit players and say, what about their lives and how were they affected? Yeah, of course, there that that play. I, I got to see that once um, back to back with Hamlet, um, well, as, with the as same cast. Yes. Yeah, they there's of course they're so gloriously clueless, which is implied in Shakespeare as well. But you know, they have these ordinary lives and they're they're being used and they don't know they're being used and it's. Um, I, I had this perfect idea in my head because when I first saw it, I was in the middle of clinical neuroscience uh, and they had been perfectly registered as the left and right part of a brain if the corpus callosum had been cut. Ah. So there was no crossover and there was no learning that normally happens because it's cut, but they're still both functioning independently. And I just appreciated that they very much were those parts of a brain that way. You know, that makes a lot of sense. That I, really does. When I think back on it. It's been a long time since I saw that. But yes, of course, of course. Well, and of course, that's what their role is in the play, is to be clueless. Yes, yes but alone in a box. Now, I have also followed you with delight on Twitter and Facebook. I have loved your haiku for 2020. Oh, good. And, and your books of haiku. So for anybody that needs a daily haiku, you simply must follow Nancy. How did you get started with that? Where, where are you doing with poetry these days? Well, 
I never considered myself a poet, maybe because I know too many real, serious, good poets. But about five or six years ago, uh, somebody, I, I believe it was uh, Kelly Eskridge who was doing this, was doing a, a series she called The Joy Project, something that made her happy every day. And I thought, that's a good idea. And it kind of evolved. It, it, it started with the joy thing, but then it became every morning, it sit down for a few minutes. What's, what's important to me today? Is it politics? Is it uh, my emotions? Is, uh, is it the, the sun shining outside? And so it's, it's almost more of a meditative practice than a poetry practice, except that I, I was just, I'm taking a poetry class right now, and I just shared a few of those with my poetry teacher and got some nice compliments on them and suggestions of what to do with them and thought, oh, well, you know, some of them actually work, you know, work in themselves as, as a poem. Some of them are just, you know, this is where I am today, or this is, you know, the crows are outside yelling at me, and that's kind of nice kind of attitude. But it was, it is, it was really meant to be more of a um, moment, a meditative moment in the morning. And it's now it's an obsession. I, I don't know, there are more than a thousand of them now. And sometimes I'm very repetitive. I go through and say, oh, I did that last year at this time, almost the same one. All yeah, it helps you recognize the cycles. Do you, I, I love the, the idea that of finding that joy every day, that bit of creative something like this last year has been very hard for many people to keep creative and to push through the, the zeitgeist that they live in to find something to connect to. And you started off life as a lawyer, right? I did. I did. I, uh... So have you found, I mean, on the one hand, being a lawyer means you're certainly capable of writing briefs and cases and quantity, but how does it help you be in touch with your more creative and fluid side? The lawyering or the haiku? (laughs) (laughs) The lawyering. Haiku, but as you like. (laughs) Uh, The the haiku. Well, the haiku, um, I'm also, one of the other things I've been doing to keep myself sane in this time, I actually took a meditation workshop that that started on election day. It was every morning for 18 days, starting with election day. And I don't think I'd have gotten through that time without actually getting up and meditating under leadership for an hour every day. And this has done pretty much the same sort of thing. It's, um, it's made me see that there was something more important going on. And what actually happens on the mornings where it's really good, sitting down and writing that, I'll find there's something else pounding in my brain, and then I'll just start writing. Now, the, the trouble with all that kind of writing for me is that it doesn't necessarily move along any projects that I'm working on. It tends to start new ones. And while that's lovely, I've, you know, I've got hundreds of computer files of started projects that never went anywhere. So <laughs> maybe I'm not alone in that. That's probably a common <laughs> a common writerly complaint, but it does free up my mind. And it's, and it's just, it's also just a form of discipline. And in this world where we don't go places and so forth, having some structure is, is helpful. I like that. I mean, I've seen, you, you see all of the time, the successful habits of highly successful people, you know, rah, rah. And it seems to be, you should get up early in the morning and juice something and do a kettlebell routine. And I am not your get up early in the morning, juice something and do a oh. kettlebell routine. But I like oh. the idea of 
centering, breathing, and having that creative moment to start to the day. So it's still a moment of brightness in its own way. Yes. I, uh, I actually spent many years getting up to go to Aikido class at seven in the morning. And I hated it every morning, except that I really loved the class. And that was the only thing that motivated me. The idea of if it's exercise in the house, no. I mean, I get up, I feed the cats, I, uh, you know, I make some coffee and I sit down and, and try to write a haiku. And that's, uh, that's as much as I can do right now. I don't I, like that. And there's no way I would self-discipline myself to do a um, kettleball routine. <laughs> I I think it's the solitary nature of it. I mean, I used to get up at five in the morning to go play hockey with a bunch of guys who are always grateful and happy to see me because everybody loves it when the goalie actually shows up at five in the morning. Yes. But if it hadn't been for them, I would have slept in another three hours. Exactly. And that's, uh, yeah, that was my, my thing with Aikido is that the morning class was just so much better than any other class in the day. And I just loved it so much. And the people that I had such connection with people. And so that was worth it. But uh, you couldn't get me to do it now. (laughs) (laughs) A different direction question. Mm -hmm. Um, You are a founding member of the Bookview Cafe, which is extremely cool. We've never talked about this. Tell everybody about the Bookview Cafe. Well, I'm, I'm not active in it anymore. So I don't know that I can tell you where it's going now. But one of the things that was very good about it for me, it was, it started back in 2008, I think, when somebody on an email list of women science fiction writers said, you know, I've been thinking about bringing out some ebooks of my backlist. And somebody else said, well, I have two. Maybe we should get together. And it was kind of like, let's put on a show. And so this was when people, first of all, any number of writers, especially a lot of mid-list writers, had a nice backlist. They had nobody. They hadn't sold the digital rights to them because nobody was buying digital rights back when they sold those rights. So they controlled all the ebook rights, and it became an experiment. People are still doing it, and they're still publishing ebooks, and and some people are publishing print books as well. And I think it's going very well for some people in particular. I think where it went some a lot of other people are do, doing similar things and people, you know, people with newer contracts like me, we don't have all those digital rights to the other things. So it's not necessarily as useful for me anymore. But uh, I know for Vonda McIntyre in particular, it was great because she did not want to do business with Amazon. And so she could put her whole backlist, which she had the rights to all of her backlist on in ebook editions, put all of it out there and be very happy that she her books were available and she wasn't making Jeff Bezos any richer. So, <laughs> yeah, um, Ursula Le Guin is on there too, wasn't she? She was, she was, and you know, Ursula was there because it was a bunch of science fiction writers doing something interesting, and she was supporting them. Ursula was so wonderful about that. I, I think, uh, I mean, Vonda was too, but uh, Vonda was an interesting participatory thing for Ursula. It was, I want to make sure that these people get get their project going. Because I, I believe in that. I believe in these new ways that people are trying. Actually, I remember in, I don't, was that a book new cafe? No, it was a broad universe back when some of us started an organization called Broad Universe. This was back in the early aughts. We had a group reading at ReaderCon and Ursula came to our reading. You know, uh, I think Octavia Butler came to our reading as well. We were all pretty much non-entities. But 
that's because they were both the kind of people who supported what other writers were doing. And of course, when I mentioned Vonda, Vonda always did that. Vonda's ability to support people uh, is just legendary. I I can't tell you how many people I heard at her memorial service talk about, oh, Vonda did this for me. Vonda did that for me. I think it's a pretty beautiful thing when people that have had that kind of success say, nobody exists in a vacuum and you got to support the other people doing it. It's, it's awesome. It's exactly. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really a, a wonderful thing. I just, because some people of course get famous and they cut everybody else off and the people that we know that, but of course science fiction. And I, I mean, I know we have within science fiction, a lot of people who we'd all rather not know, but science fiction has always had that element to it. I think of, of people being supportive of other people coming along. And I, I think it's one of the things I like about it, that there is that bigger community. There are all those people who were fans once and are now writers, but they started as fans and they care about the other fans. They care about the people who care about the stories. Yeah. So it's true. And you also write for Treehouse writers. Do some but yeah, the there. Treehouse writers are, are just a group of writers who recently gotten together and, uh, we, we framed it that we all decided to hang out in a treehouse during the pandemic, and now we don't want to leave. Of course, <laughs> we still can't leave. But, you know, and the treehouse is, you know, it's in North America, and it's also in Australia, and various people blog there. But we also, we also uh, on the private side, maintain a list and support each other and help each other when we've got uh, books coming out. It's a very... It's a very casual support, but it's it gives you a body of people to run something by and say, what do you think of this blurb? What do you think of this cover? Something like that. Oh, that can be huge. Right? Blurbs are hard. Oh, I can't write a blurb. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 wrote, to... I wrote one for my book that's coming out in June and spent I, I spent, I agonized over it, spent all this time, and I sent it off to the editor and um, and she wrote back and said, oh, you didn't have to spend all that time on it. Timmy Duchamp, who's the publisher of Aquatic Press, she's going to rewrite it anyway. And oh. it's like, oh, well, <laughs> I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have bothered so much. If they, I'm sure her version, well, her version is much better than me because I've, I've seen the arts now. It, it's sometimes hard, though, when you're in the middle of something to lift it back up and say, okay, what was my thesis in here? How do I, how do I pull that little, the, what is it about in a way that's still kind of exciting doesn't give it all the way, but shows it off. It's it's especially the doesn't give it all the way because by the time I got through I this novel, it's I should I should promote it. It's called For the Good of the Realm, and it definitely owes a great debt to the three musketeers. But the the nice elevator pitch version is it's swords women, it's it's the three musketeers with swords women and magic. However, when I got through not just writing it, but on the revisions that I did uh, early last year, I suddenly realized, oh, this is a story about a woman who, who over the time becomes, discovers just, you know, what a strong person and what a powerful person she, she is in this political environment. And I don't want to tell people too much about that because that's the whole point of reading the book. But, <laughs> uh, but that it, it is, it became something different to me over the time of, of, working on it. You know, I mean, I just started out, oh, I always wanted to be in the sword fights and all the stories are about men and the sword fights. And I love the Three Musketeers. I went through a period about, oh, 20 years ago where I reread 
uh, read or reread all the books in that series. There's a whole series of books that come after The Three Musketeers. And I went and read a whole bunch of them and was having a great time. But the women in those books are not me. And uh, so I wanted to play in it. And that's all I really intended to do when I started out. It started out as a short story. It mostly felt like I related to the Cardinal. Yes, yes. Well, um, (laughs) and the Cardinal became the hero fan because this is why you have publishers who say, if you use Cardinal, everybody's going to think it's the Roman Catholic Church and (sighs) not the Roman Catholic Church. So I called her the Hierophant and spelled it in the Spanish way just to be contrary and made it a her, which is another plug for writers groups because Madeline Robbins said that. She said, what if what if what was in the Cardinal was was a woman? And I'm like, oh, boy, that makes a story a lot more interesting and changes things. I feel like I've asked that so many times. It's like when there's a story, sometimes there's something on the edge of right or not right. I'm like, how would this be character different if their gender was the opposite or another gender or if they didn't have a gender? And it's funny that sometimes I've heard people like, oh, no, 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 that would never. I'm like, but but it would. But, but how would you would. do it differently? <laughs> it, it does change it just slightly. I mean, in this particular book, the much of this particular book, people are not restricted by gender roles. So somebody can can be a member of the guard and a woman. That's the, a great tie. Yeah. Uh, tie? I had a friend who got her um, doctorate, postdoctorate work in women's studies, in particularly in Thailand. And women were frequently had careers as special guardians and household guards. There was no concept of extra women until the English came through and ah. said, no, one man, one woman, you know, this is, these are extra women here. And they almost nearly single-handedly created brothels. Oh my God. Where it never now I, I now before. I want to read that because that's. No, Chulalong, well, King Monkut was from the guy from Anna and the King of Siam. Right. For those of you who saw that. But Chilalongkorn did huge things for women and women's education and women's universities at a time when we in the Western world were kind of backward about it. So I, as a feminist, you should look into Thailand history. Oh, I should. I, I very, that's very exciting to hear about because, you know, though it's, it's interesting, I'm not always from a feminist perspective, sometimes from a lot of other perspectives, but you look at what colonialism has done to any number of cultures that were doing things right until the European invaders came along. I mean, obviously here on the the West Coast of the United States, the history of the way the various peoples, the indigenous Californians managed, managed the forest and the fires and so forth, and did not have the big disastrous fires like we have now. And the the Westerners came along and said, oh, we must suppress all these fires. And now we've got a bigger problem in place. And you can find it, find those cultures constantly where they've, where they've changed things uh, in a very ineffective way because they didn't understand the place they were coming into and they couldn't, they couldn't change that mindset. That's that the thing is there's been a lot of talk about that in biology, I think of, of what, and zoology of what, people expect to see and therefore they see. And when you end up, for example, with women studying the great apes, you find a whole lot of different ways of looking at the behavior of the apes 
than you have when it was all men. True story. I, I know we're running low on time. I want to make sure that we talk about The Weave. This is your first published full novel coming out shortly, right? No, no. The Weave is The Weave is the one that came out five years ago. Oh, The Weave came out. Tell me the about weave The is Weave. Out. Everybody should know. Yes, it's um, class, It's science fiction. It's with with aliens and first contact and and a a warp drive that bears a slight a slight relationship to physics in that I did look at what some people, some physicists of renown actually said when they were playing with the idea of what the Star Trek warp drive might look like. I don't think they were playing seriously with physics, but there was enough to give it some credibility. It goes off to a world where, um, where we meet some aliens and, and actually it has a lot to do with colonialism because it was, it, it had the idea of we were, you know, we humans were not, trying to be evil to the people we were taking over, but we were sure we were superior. And it turns out we're, maybe we're not. And maybe we can find a balance based on the fact that of uh, uh, respect for other cultures. For the Good of the Realm is the one that's coming out um, June 1. From uh, They're both from Aqueduct Press. And the lovely thing about publishing with Aqueduct Press, which is a wonderful small press publisher, is that everything stays in print. So uh, you can still get the weave. You can get an ebook. You can order it from the publisher. It's available in some bookstores and um, obviously on Amazon. I feel like, though, now that you've gone through a couple of these these discussions, that the whole colonialism and how we treat and we're back to history is a very powerful thing for you. You know, you you mentioned that I went to law school, but before that, I probably the closest I came to having a major in college was history and. The other thing was literature, I guess. I read a lot of classics. I read some some modern literature, and, and I studied a lot of history. And those things really have an influence on me, especially and in the last few years. I've been reading quite a lot. Some of the nonfiction I've been reading has been a lot of history, especially related to um, the racist history of the United States. And so I have this background in history, and I keep stumbling onto these new ideas where I say, oh, my God, I did not know that. I didn't, or I sort of knew that, but I didn't know it from that context. And so I guess I, I, guess I must think about the world in, in terms of looking at history and then realizing that everything you're taught in school is not exactly what it's about and, and there are ways to change it, which means if you write a story, you're not stuck with the way the story, the, the history was told you about that time or place or the way people are. And so you can play, you can play with uh, the reality a lot, a lot more easily. True story. And in a lot of ways, I think you can show a lot of truth about today and our past through this history. Yes. Just similar, so many of the similar stories just seem to get retold over and over, don't they? Well, and they do. And then you meant we mentioned Texas earlier. I, as I said, I'm I'm Anglo. I'm very white. I was raised on the myths of Anglo Texas. Anglo is a common term in Texas for white people. And there's a whole mythology of that. It's known all over the world. Everybody knows about the Texas Rangers. And everybody knows about all this, you know, the cowboys and all this reality. And if you're Mexican-American, that's not the reality. If you're African-American, it's really not the reality. There's, you know, there's all these other realities that go on in that. But in school, we're taught the Anglo-Texas take on things. Oh. And, uh, you know, 
And Nancy, we're going to have to have you back to talk to John, who wants to write about the black cowboys and Mexican cowboys through the years that that have been completely whitewashed, as you say. So I would love to to chat on that. He probably knows more about it than I do, but it's oh, comparing notes at the very least, it's going to be totally worthwhile. Was, I got on an obsession a few years ago when I discovered the work of the folklorist Americo Paredes, who wrote the the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez, which was made into a, a TV movie, I think, years ago. There's a complete, there's a myth that involves the Texas Rangers that's completely different from the myth that we grow up in in Anglo, Texas. And it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful story. Well, we will put links in it and links to the podcast and other things that Nancy's been talking about on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Nancy, if somebody has a question for you, would you uh, respond back with them? Can we count on you? Oh, yes, I, I respond. I'm very, I, I will respond to DMs on Twitter or to, to emails. Glad to. Excellent. Thank you. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer is backup web spider David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking the Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg at manyhatsmusic.com. Our sponsors are Art from Jackal Designs, Coffee, Chocolate, and Rum, the last three in any order whatsoever. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.